Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My goal here is to find exceptional people that are real leaders in their fields that go above and beyond and aren't just your customary licensed or practicing individual. They really really, uh, take what they do and take it to a higher level. So I have Kevin Brown. He's a curator at the Alexander Fleming Laboratory Museum. He actually established the museum himself. Uh, he's an authority on the history of medicine. He's a graduate of Hertford College, University of Oxford, and University College London. He's a trust archivist to uh, Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust. And um, like I said, he's a curator of this museum he set up. Uh, he's also the author of seven books, such as Penicillin Man, Alexander Fleming, and the Antibiotic Revolution, uh, The Pox, The Near Life and Death of Various Social Disease, and, and many others. So, uh, Kevin, thanks for coming. I appreciate you being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah, I get the feeling you have uh, all kinds of interesting knowledge inside of you. So hopefully, I ask you some some good questions. So, what? Why? Um, what is it about the history of medicine that has fascinated you for so long? It's very well. It's very much a subject which uh, affects all of us. When you look at the history of medicine, you're not just looking at uh, how people have treated uh, particular ailments or the history of disease. You're looking at a wider subject, social history, political history, military history, and really something that's affected the lives of everybody. And also you can tell, you can look at the past and see uh, how it fits in with uh, the developments of today. Are there events in your life that really, um, where you felt like you were a part of medical history? Was it when you set up this museum or, you know, did you feel that desire, that urge to be, you know, a a big part of medical history yourself or or are you more happy just to uh, let others know about it? Well, I'm a historian, so uh, I'm not actually a practitioner of medicine. But uh, I think uh, you can bridge that arts and science divide. And so uh, explain to people and help them to understand things that uh, affect and also that have uh, made the modern world. Now, setting up the museum, I felt I was uh, (laughs) walking in the footsteps of history, almost getting to know Alexander Fleming personally. And even today, there's still some excitement about going into his lab and you feel maybe he's just gone out. But also, there's an excitement that comes from talking to visitors, talking to school children, and seeing the excitement in their eyes. And you never know, you might have inspired one to be the Alexander Fleming of tomorrow. That's true. That's true. What um, If you compare setting up a museum and finding all the items to put in it and writing descriptions, is that a lot harder than writing a book? Is there a lot more research involved or is it just a totally different beast? 
it, uh, it's a totally different approach. When you're collecting things for a museum or selecting things for an archive, you have to be completely neutral. In other words, you're not in the position where you are deciding the value of your recording. When it comes to researching and writing a book or giving a talk, then you not only have to research the material and the information, but you have to come up with an interpretation. So there's similarities in the approach, but a big difference. Personally, I enjoy the interpretive side as much as anything. Mm, makes sense. How did you, um, like, how long of a project was setting up the Fleming Museum? How did you get the items? Did you track down, like, the descendants of him? How did you go about doing it? Well, it uh, took about two, two and a half years. Now, luckily, some of the items of equipment for the lab had been kept by uh, the Department of Bacteriology at St Mary's Hospital Medical School as, if you like, the family silver. And then there were items that were given to us by Alexander Fleming's son, who was uh, a great support for the project. And then it was finding things which were perhaps of the past, but would not have been kept for any personal association, but would have been in a lab of the time. It was also invaluable to talk to people who knew Fleming personally, though not many of them left uh, 26 years on, and also to uh, talk to people who'd worked in similar lab. So it was a great challenge. Mm. But what about when it comes to writing the descriptions? Do you try to do them all yourself, or is it better to have people that uh, directly had contact with the person write the descriptions if possible? Uh, it's best for consistency to do it yourself. However, to get the information, you have to talk to people, talk to the people who gave you the items, and also to people who know how to use them. And then what about the space itself and setting up the items and doing the lighting and, you know, keeping them under glass if they need to be, if they're sensitive to light or, you know, air? Like, how do you do all that? Well, what we have tried to do is to uh, show Fleming's lab as it would have been back in 19. So we do have some display cases with uh, some, if you like, museum items. But the exciting thing is actually seeing Fleming's lab as it was now, that does pose uh, challenges, preservation of the material, and uh, that has to be balanced with making it available. After all, it's no good just locking it away. So there are challenges there. The other challenge comes from the fact that there's never the money to do everything. And so there are things we'd like to do to preserve things which are just too expensive. However, in the world of uh, of museums and curating and preservation, what where is the big cost? Is it in the research and the setup? Is it in the preservation? Like, you know, what well, are the things that are really expensive? Well, the cost comes from staff. And it comes from uh, acquiring items which might come up for auction. It's an example of that. About uh, 20 years ago, a mold medallion came up. This was something that Alexander Fleming used to give to people as a thank you. They would give him an honorary degree 
or an award of some kind, and he wanted to give something back. And what he thought was best was a piece of the mole produced penicillin. So what he did was he would mount the mould and then give it as a little medal. There are quite a lot of these. They were given to people like Winston Churchill, President Roosevelt, even Marlene Dietrich. Now, one of these came up for auction and there was no way we could have afforded it. However, there was a BBC News item and afterwards someone phoned up and said uh, she had one of them. Would we like it? It had belonged to her uncle, who was a lab technician working with Fleming. So I explained to her how much she could get if she sold it. No, she wanted to get for nothing. It was. Do you also ask people that have, you know, expensive items if they would, I guess, would they temporarily loan it to a museum so they can display it? Yes, we do have uh, some things which are on loan. For example... We have a specially made ceramic penicillin culture vessel, which is on loan from the Pharmaceutical Society Museum. And otherwise, we wouldn't have one on display, and it would be hidden away in their store. So Mm. we both benefit. That's cool. Um, Any elements of Fleming's story that you learned that really weren't in the history books, that are new or different? Well... I th- I would hope that I was uh, that I put forward something new about Fleming. Well, I was quite pleased that uh, my biography of him was the first one that uh, his son actually approved of. But in addition to that, there were such little personal things as uh, the fact that his wife was uh, seven years older than, though it was never admitted. So in the marriage register, they're both the same age, even in, on her death certificate. However, it turned out that her baptism would have been seven years before she was born. Her son had uh, been to his mother's birthplace and had been shown the baptismal register. So, nice little feature, but it gives you some idea about the man. The fact that I suspect he was quite sensitive and respected his wife's uh, concern about not being seen as older than him, which would have been something un- unthought of at the time. Oh, interesting. But also, you, um, one other thing that I think uh, hasn't been emphasised so much in the past is the importance of Fleming's earlier work in making him receptive to uh, his chance observation the mould contaminated dish. In 1921, he discovered an enzyme called lysozyme. And this enzyme is present in many body fluids like saliva, tears. Fleming discovered it in his own nasal mucus. And it very much has a part to play in our own defences against infection. However, Fleming was working in a department where all the research was meant to feed into clinical practice. Nowadays, it would be called translational medicine. They were doing it 90-odd years ago and longer. They just didn't have a buzzword. Well, the problem with lysozyme, which Fleming always said was had been his best scientific word, the problem was it doesn't act against the most pathogenic of bacteria. Fleming 
when he saw what penicillin did, he thought, could this be another enzyme, but a much more potent one? Now, that was what got him interested in penicillin to begin with, the similarities to the action of lysis. Mm, that's interesting. But it wasn't just him. He soon found out it wasn't an enzyme at all. So by that time, he's interested in penicillin for itself. But when the Oxford team, led by the Australian pathologist Howard Florey, who, who brought penicillin into clinical use, began work on penicillin in 1939, they just finished a research project on lysozyme. So you can see that how one discovery had led two different people, an individual and then later on a team, to uh, take an interest in something which uh, was to have greater importance than the original observation. Yeah, yeah. What about, um, you know, literally today, modern day, is there, I mean, is the research at all similar to what was done back then? Um, does it still inform today's research? Well, penicillin uh, led the way in the development of antibiotics. Fleming himself warned of the dangers of antibiotic resistance as early as 1943. He was warning both scientific audiences and the general public. And antibiotic resistance is a big modern problem. Now, I would say that much more money needs to be put into antibiotic research. And also, we need to be careful with such things as not uh, using antibiotics when they aren't needed. So viral infection, it was, for example, have no effect on. And also, not use it in things like animal foodstuffs, which where it's been used uh, for growth promotion and also to prevent infection. So I think we need to be very careful. They are lessons from the past. Mm. Um, uh, I guess moving to the the books that you've written, which book is your favourite and and why? What was the one that you really benefited most from writing or learned the most or just enjoyed? Well, the simple answer to that is whatever I'm working on at the moment is what I enjoy the most. But looking back, I'd say one of the most important ones was actually Penicillin Man, the the biography of Alexander Fleming, because that still continues almost to be a standard work on the subject. And the number of uh, people who were in touch about it is astounding. I'm also proud of the uh, latest one I wrote about health and medicine and the Royal Navy in the Second World War. And again, that was something which uh, seems to have uh, hit a chord with a lot of people. Since, um, you know, I saw in your bio that, you know, you, you specifically say you're a, a non-scientist, but with all the research you've done, you know, into the books and the museum and all the work you've done, do you run into respect from people that are scientists, that are doctors, or is that always uh, something that's, I don't know, that affects you or it, you find no problem there? Well, uh, I do work with a lot of uh, doctors on a daily basis. And indeed, uh, I was urged to initially write the Fleming biography by uh, doctors, medical doctors. But I have uh, had to build up a working relationship with uh, lots of scientists, lots of medics, 
And I think uh, there's a warm mutual respect there. I remember several years ago, I was giving a lecture at uh, Rutgers University and afterwards uh, had a seminar with microbiology students. And one of them asked, are you a historian or are you a microbiologist? Now, I hope that didn't mean I was bad at both, but I have learnt a lot from scientists and I've needed to learn about the science to understand the history and to explain it to other people. What's, um, you said you still get a lot of uh, inbound, I guess, probably on you know, the museum and the books. And what, uh, I believe you said Penicillin Man especially. What, uh, what kind of letters and inquiries and you know, things do you get uh, where people contact you about your work? What are they asking? Oh, it can be anything. For example, a few days ago, somebody was in touch about uh, Fleming's work on microbial art. He used to paint pictures using different pigmented bacteria. He called them germ paints. Essentially, it was painting by numbers with bugs. A bit of fun, but uh, it shows you quite a lot about someone who has an imaginative approach to science. So that was uh, one particular inquiry. I get a lot of inquiries from school children doing projects on Fleming. And also from university students and academics. So even though penicillin was discovered 92 years ago, it still is something people are interested in. Any uh, facets of the story of Fleming that aren't commonly known that you've learned? Sorry, could you say that again? Oh, any facets of the story, like the literally the, the, the discovery itself, did it just happen you know, when he came back to the lab and discovered this culture or, you know, what's the, like, what's the, the short version of literally how penicillin was discovered? Well, there's a lot of mythology about the discovery of penicillin. But what effectively happened was Fleming had been working on a chapter for Medical Research Council textbook and he was allocated the subject of staphylococci. He prepared some culture plates just in order to make some observation and finished the work and went off on holiday. It was his usual custom to leave his petri dishes for a couple of weeks after he'd finished with just in case anything interesting might have happened. On this occasion, Fleming was on holiday for six weeks. Not bad. And he came back to work on the 3rd of September, 19. He was inspecting his petri dishes for one last time, and something on one of them caught his attention. With the immortal words, that's funny, he uh, observed that one of the petri dishes had become contaminated by fungus. The contamination didn't interest him. What interested him was that there were none of the bacteria growing close to the mould. He had his own mm. inhibition. The fungus had produced something that stopped the bacteria. Now, it didn't just happen by pure chance. Yes, it was a chance observation and a chance in tandem, but it took more than that to take advantage of the observation. Fleming needed to be intellectually, which he was from other work he'd done, now, one thing that most people aren't aware of, Fleming must have left his petri dishes at ambient room temperature. If he'd put them into the incubator, the heat would have killed the mould off immediately. That would have uh, meant that 
the Petri dish was just covered with the bacteria, no motion. Now, there's a good reason why he might have left the plates at ambient room temperature. He'd uh, read recently a paper by another microbiologist, Joseph Bigar from Dublin, which said you could get some interesting staphylococcal variations if you left for a couple of weeks. And secondly, there was a suggestion that you could assess the virulence of the bacteria by their pigmentation. Fleming was interested in pigmentation because one of his hobbies was germ painting, using different pigmented bacteria to produce works of art. So you can see why he left them at room temperature. But remember, this is the end of July, beginning of August. It should be too warm for the fungus to establish itself long enough for the bacteria to be inhibited. However, Met Office records show that there was an unseasonally cold spell at the end of July, early August, followed by normal temperatures summer towards the end of them. So enough time for the bacteria for the fungus to establish itself, and then when the bacteria began to grow, for them to be inhibited. So there's quite a lot going on there, which most people don't appreciate. I guess there was uh, multiple coincidences or beneficial events that led to it. There almost seems to be too much coincidence. Hmm. It happened, it's coincidence with the discovery of lysosome. That was another chance observation when he was studying what was then the new subjective bacteriophage, and he had a cold and wondered what would happen if he added his nasal mucus to a plate of bacteria. After a couple of weeks, there was signs of of lysis, and that again made him deceptive when he came to penicillin. He sounds like a very curious person that was willing to try all kinds of strange stuff. I think uh, you do need someone like Fleming who thinks outside the box and who has an imaginative approach to science. He always said he knew the rule and he knew when he could break them. Uh, that's funny. What, what year did he uh, pass away? Fleming died in 1955, so for the last 10 years or so of his life, he did see the benefits and the impact it made on the world. Did, uh, what, was, what was his personal thoughts about it? Was he proud of it? Was he, uh, I don't know, was he like shy about it? Fleming was uh, quite a modest, unassuming man. He could have uh, stood in front of you in silence for about half an hour without a word. Uh, you would have felt uncomfortable, but he wouldn't. Well, he very much took the adulation he got from the discovery of penicillin in his stride. He wasn't someone who commented on it. But wherever he went after the discovery of penicillin, he was lying on. In 1945, he had a triumphant tour of North America. When he went to Spain, at Matadors, in the air, bullying knelt before him. And some of that attention he found a bit overwhelming. Essentially, I think he enjoyed the fame that came with penicillin, but he knew it was all because of penicillin. He was proud of that discovery. He talked about it as my penicillin. What does uh, the word penicillin come from? I mean, uh, decided to call 
the substance that inhibited bacteria, mold juice at first. Not the most scientific names. Mold juice? Mold <laughs> juice. Imagine going to a doctor and being given mold juice. <laughs> exactly. Well, he then named it penicillin after the fungus that produced it. This was a fungus which uh, was identified as Penicillium notatum. Later, it was uh, re-identified again as a subspecies of Penicillium chrysogenum. And that's one of the wonders of science. Things change the more people do research and the more they find out. So he basically named it after the mould. Penicillin, the product of the fungus, Penicillium. Okay, very good. Well, just a couple more questions. Um, you know, obviously, while we're talking today, the uh, you know, there's the SARS-CoV-2 outbreak or the COVID-19 outbreak. Mm. Are you uh, thinking perhaps about writing about this when it's all over? Or, you know, how does this event fit into your perspective, knowing that you know so much about uh, medical history? I have been asked by a publisher if I would uh, consider writing a history of infectious diseases and the fight against contagion over the last 100 years. So from maybe the 1870s, 1880s, when bacteriology offered a way of understanding what caused a disease up to the current crisis. However, at the moment, uh, research is going to be very difficult. And also, in dealing with the current COVID-19 crisis, we just don't know enough yet about what is happening. And a lot of what anyone does know is very journalistic, which is an interesting study in itself. But I think we do need to know a lot more and have a bigger understanding of what has happened, why people have responded in the way they have, and just how it fits into the wider picture. So I think there needs to be some time before anybody could do a definitive work. However, I'd be interested when the time comes. Mm. Very good. Um, in terms of medical history, have you tried to go back to the origins of medicine? Is that with Hippocrates or is that way before him or after? Well, you could say it goes back to prehistoric man when you have examples of trepanning, uh, basic brain surgery. However, a more scientific, uh, understanding and study of the history of medicine does go back to Hippocrates, the Greeks and the Romans. Now I have gone back to some extent with some of uh, the work I've done. For example, I've taken the history of naval medicine back to the Middle Ages. There's a f- and even earlier, there are few references to surgeons on Roman galleys. And then also looked at the way the chips could carry infection, especially something like the Black Death, which uh, provoked a lot of responses similar to the ones we've seen today. And I've looked at the history of syphilis back to the 16th century. And that was also being treated with approaches that went back to Hippocrates. Are there any uh, approaches nowadays that, you know, go all the way back to Hippocrates? You know, some of the longest-standing approaches? Well, I think it's the uh, it's very much a case of following Hippocrates and studying the course of disease. A lot of what the Greeks were doing 
is no longer relevant today. But knowing what they were doing and the philosophy behind it, I think is important. You have a short example of that? Well, uh, I think it's important to look at things like uh, trying to understand the idea of disease being caused by the four humours and the fact that well into the 17th and 18th century there were some physicians who believed if it wasn't in Hippocrates then it didn't exist which uh, brings up the whole issue of we need to be much more open-minded not to think because something is done the way it has always been done that's the way to do it in the future but then there are other approaches which go back to the middle ages like quarantine which still continue to be sensible Mm. so it's a case of looking at things individually and seeing do they apply today or do they not but also knowing that understanding and knowledge do change and we need to move forwards well very good well kevin uh, you, yeah you definitely sound like you have a lot of uh, really interesting unusual knowledge especially oh. from what you've studied so what um where is the uh, alexander fleming museum and uh, how can people uh, find out more about all your books and your work the, the Alexander Fleming Laboratory Museum is uh, at St Mary's Hospital, Paddington, in London. It's uh, still very much part of a major teaching hospital, which uh, puts it into good, a good context. At the moment, obviously, the museum is closed to the public, but uh, when we do reopen for visitors, anyone can come if they contact me. My email's kevin.brown5 at nhs.net. And we'd be happy to see people in due course. Now, if you want to find out more about what I've written, you can uh, look at uh, my page on Amazon. And uh, most things are still in print, I'm happy to say. I also do feel things like Kindle extend the life of books these days. Like that. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Well, very good. Well, Kevin, it's been uh, good talking to you, and I, I really appreciate you coming and spending the time. Oh, it's been good to talk to you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.